Thank you for listening to the Murray Hills Church podcast. We're in a series right now called Anchored Spirituality. It's an emotional health series, and we're going to be looking at six different principles to help us improve our emotional and spiritual health. I hope you find this helpful, and I hope we learn something together. We're talking anchored spirituality this morning. We're talking emotional health. We're going to start working our way through uh, the different principles in this series, and today we're talking about authenticity. So um, I'm just going to rip the Band-Aid off and jump right in there. I'm going to tell a story I, I probably shouldn't tell, but um, this is a safe place, right? Okay, thank you. It's, for, it's safe with one of you. Um, <clears throat> the last two summers, I've coached uh, baseball at uh, Mealtown Baseball League. I'm not a baseball coach. I'm a softball coach, but... Roman has played baseball, and so, you know, like if you're, if you if you show up at all the games, like eventually you end up coaching, um, and so, I coached with uh, Keith Crawford and Montre Osborne, and we had this 12 and under baseball team, and one of the practices last summer, we were, we were over at the, it's we play at Fairview Park, and we were on the big field at Fairview Park, and we were doing fly balls. I was doing fly balls with the kids, so I had like four or five of the little boys. And I was doing fly balls with them, and, and Crawford had some other kids over there, Montre had some other kids. And two little boys got into it, and I don't even remember what it was. That, but, I mean, two of them started fighting. Yeah, that, that'll happen. And they started fussing at each other, mouthing each other and all that. And one of them cussed the other one. And I'm not going to say what he said, but one of them like, you beauty, beep, beep. You know, and, and, of course, I heard it. Everybody on the field heard it. And so... I, you know, I jumped him. I'm like, and I'm not going to use his real name. And I'm like, Johnny, you do not talk like that on this baseball field. Absolutely not. That's not the kind of language we use. You go over the dugout, right? You know, I see him over the dugout. I was doing my, you know, my coach responsibilities. I, you know, I got after him pretty good and sent him over the dugout and made him sit down for a while. And his mom was in the stands watching the whole thing. And she didn't say anything to me after it was over. And I didn't say, about after five, ten minutes of him sitting by himself, I'm like, okay, come on. You can come back and start doing drills with us. So Johnny came back and started doing drills with us. And that was that. And we were done. Well, two or three days later, we had a ball game. And uh, Roman and I showed up at the park. And Johnny and his mom, you know, get out of their car. And they, they walk straight towards us. And it's like, you know, Johnny's kind of, you know, he, you can tell. He's contrite. And he's got his head down. And he's kind of looking. And they walk up to me. And. She says, uh, Johnny, you have anything you want to tell the coach? And he said, yeah, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am. And she said, uh, well, go ahead. And he said, uh, I'm, I'm sorry for uh, saying a bad word, coach. And, of course, this is, you know, like this is a very serious moment because I'm, you know, you got to take the, I'm like, well, Johnny, I appreciate that. I appreciate you apologizing to me, and I accept your apology, and, um, you know, and then so then, like you, I should just stop there. You know, you like just accept the apology and move on. But I wanted to make Johnny feel better because I'm like, listen, that happens sometimes, Johnny. It just it happens. Sometimes we lose our cool, we get mad, we say words like that, we don't mean to. And Roman, at that point, decides to interject himself in the conversation. He goes, Dad, you say words like that all the time. And I'm like, what, whoa, 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 what are you talking I do not say that all the time. What are you talking about? He goes, yeah, you do. When you get mad, you say words like that. I, and I'm like, just, just, I mean, it's like I lost total control of the conversation. And I did not, I mean, 
I was, like my heart started beating faster and my face was getting red. And of course, Johnny's mom is standing behind Johnny trying her best, trying her best to hold it together and not fall apart. And, and I share that story with you um, because it perfectly illustrates what happens when we practice authenticity. Even if it's our children who practice authenticity for us, but it perfectly illustrates what happens when we practice authenticity because three things happen in quick succession um, by that ball field. Number one, I felt immediate embarrassment. I did. My face turned red. Uh, you know, I, I was like, I wanted to hide. I wanted to get out of there. It was like, okay, baseball is starting. Let's go play baseball. I felt me embarrassment. Number two, I felt the need to explain myself. And, and I'm feeling both of those things now. Like standing up here, like when I'm telling that story, my heart beats just a little faster because I, it's, it, I, I'm, I'm embarrassed because I don't know how people are going to respond to that. I don't know what people are going to say about that. And, I don't, and, and I'm afraid some of you are going to believe Roman. And so I feel the need to explain myself. Like it's not all the time. Yeah, no, sure, I've said a word like that before, but it's not all the time, okay? It's not every, it's, you, you, agree, you believe me, right? You believe me, okay? It's not all the time, just trust me. Um, so, you know, I felt embarrassment, and I felt the need to explain myself. And Johnny's mom felt immediate relief. Now, think about that dichotomy. And, and this happens, I want you to think about this happens anytime, as I said, anytime we practice authenticity. Think about this. I'm embarrassed because Roman said that. And she's relieved because Roman said that. So like whenever we are, we, whenever we dare to be vulnerable with another person, that's usually what happens. So when we are on the giving end of the vulnerability, like I have dared to be vulnerable and to share a story or dared to do something and, and kind of show a little bit part of yourself to somebody, then we feel embarrassment, we feel like we need to explain ourselves, we feel like, like we're worried about what are people going to think, how are people going to respond, what are people going to think. Once they find this out, what are the people going to think? But the person on the receiving end of the vulnerability usually experiences immediate relief and connection. Like we second guess it, we're like, I shouldn't have said that, what was I doing? why did I tell that story, I don't even know why I did that, that was so stupid, people are going to think differently, me. You know, like, and the person on the receiving end is going, I'm so glad you said that because that now I can I don't have to pretend around you anymore because I feel like maybe you're normal. Like I, I'm so glad. Like that's what happens. There's relief on the receiving end because we feel like I can be myself around somebody that I I can let my guard down a little bit because I'm not being graded and and I don't have to pretend anymore. And if if you think about it, that's the point in which relationships start to deepen. Relationships start to deepen when we dare to be vulnerable with another person, and then the other person reciprocates a little bit. And in, in the beginning, in the early stage of a relationship, that vulnerability is like little tiny steps. Like, I'm, I'm going to reveal just a little bit of myself to see whether or not you'll still accept me. But as the relationship deepens, that it, it becomes more, and that's how they grow. It's when we stop pretending to be the person we thought they wanted us to be, and we just start being ourselves. Now... I'm going to share a quote with you from my brother, and I'm going to put this on the big screen. Nobody take a picture of it, and nobody tell him I did this because I don't want him to get the big head. But uh, this is from my brother. Authenticity is the only thing that builds sustainable trust. 
I don't know if that's unique to him. I didn't take the time to try to figure that out. I just heard him say it on a podcast like four or five years ago, and I'd, I'd written it down somewhere. Authenticity is the only thing that builds sustainable trust. In our best moments, we know and believe that is true because the people who love us the most are those who know us the best. I want you to think about that. The people, like, the people that know us, love us the most, are the people that know us the best. They know the good, they know the bad, they know the ugly. And I'm talking about like parents or, or uh, siblings or children or spouses. Like they know, they know the real us and they still love us. Like they know what we're like in our best moments and they know what we're like in our worst moments and they still love us. Their love is not contingent upon us having perfect behavior all the time or, or never slipping up and making a mistake or always having our emotions in check and in control and all that. Like they know us and they love us. So in our best moments, we, yeah, absolutely, I believe that. Authenticity builds sustainable trust. But in our worst moments, we think the opposite is true. We think if anyone knows the real me, they'll never love me or accept me. Like if anybody knows what I'm really like, which is why we, you know, we armor up and we do all we can to present this image of ourselves that we think people want to see because we're trying to manage perception as a way of building connection when it's actually the opposite that works. The more we try to manage perception as a way of building connection, it actually creates disconnection. We create connection when we stop trying to manage what other people think about us. Now, I read, a, I'm going to throw another quote on the screen here, just a second, from Brene Brown. And, and she writes about this in the context of embarrassment. And she was talking about it from, and any of us know what this is like. I mean, think back to your, like when you were fifth, sixth, seventh grade, and you first become aware that other people, of what other people think about you. And, and you suddenly start to care a tremendous amount of what other, other people think about you. And, and, you know, if you raised teenagers, you know that they're constantly, in some sense, in a state of embarrassment because you're worried about what other people are going to think about you. Brene says this, it's constant cringe when we first start seeing ourselves through others' eyes. And it stays that way until we get to midlife and fall apart before we realize it just takes too much energy to try to manage perception. I just, I, that really resonated with me because I felt like, you know, for, for so much of my life, especially when I'm younger, it's all about managing perceptions because that's the way you're accepted into the right group. That's the way you're, you're welcomed in. You've got to manage the perception so that you're welcomed in the right group. And if you don't manage it correctly, then you're going to get kicked out. And maybe the church has instilled some of that fear in us. But at some point you get to, to a point in your life and go, you know what, I can't control what other people think about me. And I don't know that I need to control what other people think about me. And in doing that, in stopping trying to manage the perceptions, that's actually where we start to build connection. We build connection because authenticity is the thing that builds trust and connection in relationships. I'm going to give you two examples. Okay, I'm going to give you two examples, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. So if you've got a Bible with you, you can go to Psalms 51. It's my Old Testament example. And Scott's right. I've been reading from the New Living Translation, too. And it's just putting things in a whole different light. I, I was so used to kind of what I'd been reading that um, somebody donated a Bible to the church to give to somebody who didn't have a Bible. And I didn't have a New Living Translation, so I took it. Uh, so <laughs> I want to appreciate that donation because I, I, I didn't have a Bible. 
But I've been reading from this translation, and it's really, really, really shook me. But this is the 51st Psalm. Now, everybody knows the 23rd Psalm, right? It's like probably the most, most beloved Psalm out there is the 23rd Psalm. And it's beloved because it's full of hope, right? I, I shall not want, the Lord is my shepherd, makes me lie down, you know, makes me lie down in green pastures. You know, it's, it's full of hope. So in our darkest moments, we read the 23rd Psalm. Um, when I do funerals, I will almost always read the 23rd Psalm because it's full of hope. This psalm, I think, is loved because it's full of honesty. And this is the psalm that I go to in dark moments when I want to know that I'm not alone in the way I feel. And this is the one that if somebody comes to me and they're like, you know, they've done something bad, they've done something wrong, and they're just they're wrecked with guilt and shame and those things. Like, this is the one you read. Because this is, if you read the... Uh, the prelude there, it says, For the choir director, a psalm of David, regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So David, um, David had been exposed. And it, this, this secret that he tried to keep secret, this thing that he tried to keep hidden for so, so long, and went to great lengths to make sure nobody ever found out about this. Well, through the confrontation with the prophet Nathan, Everybody knows about it. And he not only feels embarrassment, he feels shame and he feels guilt. But what David doesn't do is feel the need to explain himself. Instead, this is what he says. I'll read you the whole psalm. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love. Because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognize my shameful deeds. They haunt me day and night. Against you and you alone have I sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. You, have, you will be proved right in what you say, and your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the very moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the heart. So you can teach me to be wise in my inmost being. Purify me from my sins and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. Renew a right spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore me, again, the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. And then I will teach your ways to sinners and they will return to you. Forgive me. For shedding blood, O God who saves, then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. Unseal my lips, O God, that I may praise you. Now this, is the, this part right here is a, is a shocking statement that David makes. It doesn't shock us because we're not, we don't come from an Old Testament perspective or background. We're not, uh, the people of Israel, especially those who are highly committed to the law of Moses, would have been shocked by what David says next. You would not be pleased with sacrifices or I would bring them. If I brought you a burnt offering, you would not accept them. The burnt offering and sacrifices, there's, there's, there's pages and pages in here about the proper ways to bring burnt offerings and sacrifices. This is their worship. And David said, you're not satisfied with my worship. That's not what you're interested in. You're not satisfied with my church attendance, if you want to put it in a modern context. You're not satisfied with my... The sacrifice you want is a broken spirit. A broken and repentant heart, O oh God, you will not despise. So look on favor with Zion and help her rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then you'll be pleased with worthy sacrifices and with our whole burnt offerings. And the bulls will again be sacrificed on your altar. I'm attracted to that psalm because it communicates feelings I've felt. And as I said last week, what I love about the psalms is I think so much of the psalms is put in there so that we would realize you're not alone. You're not alone in feeling like this. Not, you're not the first human that's felt embarrassment. You're not the first human that's felt shame or guilt over something you've done. You're not the first human that's, that's felt brokenness before God. And so the Psalms are an honest confession of the human condition. So David is completely honest. And, and, and that's what God desires from us. He says it in the Psalm. God desires from us an honesty of the heart. So he's completely honest, but there's still declarations of who God is. So it talks about who we are. We are broken but there's also declarations of who God is. God is, his love never fails. His compassion is great. His forgiveness is complete. So we don't have to pretend to be somebody else with God in order to be accepted by him. We don't have to manage perceptions with God. And if you think about it, some of us try to do that. Like we're, we, we try to manage perceptions with church people. We try to manage perceptions with God. If I can do this, then he'll accept me. If I can be this faithful, then he'll then he'll give favor to me or blessing to me or then then I'll be healed or whatever it is we try to manage perceptions with God what David tells us in the 51st Psalm you don't have to do that because God knows the real you and he loves you the same I mean you don't it's not like God's not like other people <laughs> and that's the uh, and that's weird to say but God's not like other people he's not like I don't have to worry about whether or not God is going to accept me when he discovers what I'm really like. Because God already knows what we're really like. And his love is unfailing. And his compassion is great. And his forgiveness is complete. Here's the New Testament uh, passage. And this one, again, this is another one I would go to whenever I'm feeling like... In moments of vulnerability, you, I mean, you feel exposed. You feel like, you know... Everybody's looking at me, and I'm the only one dealing with this, and you know everybody's judging me, and everybody's grading me, and all that kind of stuff. And there's so many passages of Scripture you can go to to discover that uh, you're not alone. You're not alone. Uh, this one is Romans chapter 7, verse 18. And uh, this is the Apostle Paul talking about his struggle with sin. And he says this, I know I'm rotten through and through uh, so far as my old sinful nature is concerned. So no matter which way I turn, I can't make myself do right. I want to, but I can't. And when I want to do good, I don't. And when I try not to do wrong, I do it anyway. This is one of the apostles of Jesus speaking. I mean, this is like the, the, the guy wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. This is his confession. This is the honesty of his heart. But if I'm doing what I don't want to do, I'm not really the one doing it. It's the sin within me is doing it. It seems to be a fact of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another law at work within me that is at war with my mind. This law wins the fight and makes me a slave to sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin? It's an honest and authentic confession. And it's like if the Apostle Paul feels this way about himself, then maybe I'm not so bad after all. You know, like maybe, maybe there's a chance for me. If the Apostle Paul struggles with doing the right thing when he knows he wants to do right and he just seems can't do it and he doesn't want to do wrong, but he just can't to do it, maybe, 
maybe there's hope for us as well. And he asked the question, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin? And, and Paul answers his own question. So it's an honest confession of the human condition with a declaration of who God is. We are broken. We are sinful. We are in need of help. But here's who God is. Thank God. This is verse 25. Thank God. The answer is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you see how it is? In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. But then he continues in, in chapter 8 of verse 1. But there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. For the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you through Christ Jesus from the power that leads to death. The law of Moses could not save us because of our sinful nature. But God put into effect a different plan to save us. Now I put those two together. Like Even David realized... Early on, at the height of his brokenness, David realized that the sacrifice of um, bulls and goats is not going to save me. The sacrifice on these altars is not going to save me. It's, that's not what God's looking for. God is not looking for my proper forms of worship. He's looking for a broken and contrite heart. That's, that's what God deems acceptable to him, is somebody that comes to him broken to say, God, I, I, can, I do not have it all together and I need your help. And that's whom God is, that's, I mean, that's whom God is, I don't know what the word is here, attracted to. I mean, it's, it's like we think that if, if I can just be a good person, then God will love me. And it's like God actually loves our brokenness. He loves all the broken parts and all the bad parts. I mean, he, he loves us in spite of any of that. And Paul then talks about that, you know, it wasn't the law of Moses. That wasn't what could save us. But God put in effect a different Plan. The burnt offerings and the sacrifices can't save us. The carefully constructed image of perfection that we have tried to manage can't save us. The, um, our reputation can't save us. Only Jesus can save us. And we don't have to pretend with him because we're not being graded. And it's not a test. And we don't have to be perfect. It's actually our brokenness that he loves as much as anything and unfortunately that's not usually the way it is with church or with church people and if that's the case we're the ones that need to repent and change not God we we need to become more like like God we need to become more like him in the way that we treat and accept other people and the way we interact with one another I want to close with this um, it's a it's a reading it's Rick Warren uh, wrote it. He's a pastor in California that, that wrote The Purpose Driven Life. And he was talking about authenticity. And he said it so well and so concisely. And I'm like, I want to, I'm just going to let his words speak for themselves. And then we'll, we'll be dismissed shortly. He says, In Christian fellowship, we should experience authenticity. Authentic fellowship is not superficial, surface level chit chat. It's genuine, heart-to-heart, -heart, sometimes gut-level sharing. It happens when people get honest about who they are and what is happening in their lives. They share their hurts, reveal their feelings, confess their failures, disclose their doubts, admit their fears, acknowledge their weaknesses, and ask for help in prayer. Authenticity is the exact opposite of what you find in many churches. Instead of an atmosphere of honesty and humility, there's pretending role-playing, politicking, and superficial politeness, but shallow conversation. 
People wear masks, they keep their guards up, and they act as if everything is rosy in their lives. Those attitudes are the death of real friendship. It's only when we become open about our lives that we experience authentic fellowship. The Bible says if we live in the light as God is in the light, we can share fellowship with one another. But if we say we have no sin, we're fooling ourselves. 1 John 1, 7. The world thinks intimacy occurs in the dark. But God says it happens in the light. We tend to use the darkness to hide our hurts, faults, fears, failures, and flaws. But in the light, we bring them all out into the open admit who we really are. Of course, being authentic requires courage and humility. It means facing our fear of exposure, rejection, and being hurt again. Why would anyone take such a risk? Because it's the only way to grow spiritually and be emotionally healthy. The Bible says, make this your common practice. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you can live together whole and healed. James 5.16. Let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we admit to you that authenticity is very difficult for us to practice because we are constantly worried about how people are going to receive us or what people are going to think of us. And um, we're worried about that for good reason because many times we have been authentic or we have confessed sin or we have confessed a struggle and people have rejected us or turned their back on us or um, pushed us out of their lives. Or pushed us out of a church. And we know that that is as much a, a result of the human condition of sin as, as anything. And I pray that you help us to remember that, that you don't. That as David said in the psalm, your love is unfailing and your compassion is great. And um, what you desire for us is, is a broken and, and contrite heart. You will not reject that. You will not turn us away. And... Um, I pray that you help us to remember the things that Paul said in, in Romans 7, that the answer to our sin problem is Jesus. Who you are through Christ Jesus, he became and became the perfect sacrifice for us so that we could be made healed and, uh, and whole again. And so, Father, help us to, help us to realize that. And as and much as possible, help us to have the courage and humility to just be our authentic selves with each other. And I pray that this church is a safe place to do that. I pray that this church is a place where people can, can ask questions and have doubts and just be honest with who they are and the things they're struggling with and know that they'll still be loved and accepted uh, here. So I pray you help us to do that uh, as a congregation and as a body. It's in the name of your son, Jesus, I pray these things. Amen. Um, as you leave today, there's a giving slide if you'd throw that up for me, Parker. As you leave today, you can give electronically or you can give at those collection boxes. Uh, next Sunday, we're talking about nurtured rest. And so I, I kind of have a feeling that's a message a lot of us need to hear, myself included. So uh, that'll be next Sunday, and we'll hope to see you then. Enjoy the rest of the week.